This morning we're in Hebrews chapter 9, verse 23 to 28. And the theme for this morning's message is, what is Jesus doing for his children? What is Jesus doing for his children? Hebrews 9, verse 23 to 28. Let's pray. Our Father in heaven, as we come to your word this morning, and we open the scriptures, may it be that the Holy Spirit draws the sword from its scabbard, the word of God, living and active, sharper than any two-edged sword. We pray that you would pierce right into the souls of men and women, boys and girls, that you would expose our hearts, that you would show us our hearts, and as we then cry out in desperation for mercy, that you would wash us with the blood of the Lamb, the blood of Jesus Christ, the blood shed for sinners on the cross of Calvary. Transform us by the Holy Spirit. Change us and apply to us the death of our Lord Jesus Christ. And help us then to live as children of God. For the glory and honor of your name we pray this. Amen. Many years ago, I was at a youth meeting. And... A guy, a young guy at the meeting, he'd already left school, but he was so boastful about himself as he was playing the guitar, saying openly how fantastic he is, and just praising himself for his talent to play the guitar, saying, man, I am amazing, I am so good. And he was one of the leaders in the youth music group. And then also continuing looking at his smart clothes and his very expensive Nike tackies, saying, I'm so blessed, man, I'm so blessed. Praise Jesus. Thank you, Jesus. Thank you, Jesus. Now, as you can guess, he was from a prosperity background, a false gospel of the prosperity churches. Uh, and as all prosperity people, he focused on the here and now, on this world, on the wealth and health in this life. And eternal life was just absent. The New Testament teaches the exact opposite. The New Testament teaches us to focus on spiritual things, to focus on the life to come. And that is one of the great lessons we learn in Hebrews 9, verse 23 to 28. Let's read it. Thus it was necessary for the copies of the heavenly things to be purified with these rites, speaking of the previous verses, meaning in the Old Testament rites where, they, where blood was shed and so on, to be purified with these rites. So that's what happened in the Old Covenant, he says, but the heavenly things themselves with better sacrifices than these. For Christ has entered not into holy places made with hands, which are copies of the true things, but into heaven itself, now to appear in the presence of God on our behalf. Nor was it to offer himself repeatedly as the high priest enters the holy places every year with blood not his own. For then Christ would have had to suffer repeatedly since the foundation of the world. But as it is, he has appeared once for all at the end of the ages to put away sin by the sacrifice of himself. And just as it has 
as it is appointed for man to die once and after that comes judgment. So Christ, having been offered once to bear the sins of many, will appear a second time, not to deal with sin, but to save those who are eagerly waiting for him. So what is Jesus doing for his children? Number one, first answer, he's making a house ready for them, or he's preparing a house for them. That's in verse 23. So it's like a bird, a bird called a weaver. So the male weaver builds a nest, and he prepares a nest to attract the female. And to make the illustration even more relevant to our subject here, or the topic, the bridegroom, before this man gets married, he first gets the house ready and he builds a house for his bride. And that is what Jesus is doing for us. Jesus is preparing our home, our house in heaven, a heavenly home for us. Like John says, Jesus said it in John 14, verse 2 and 3, he's going to prepare a place for us. And the way he does this, He does this uh, preparing heaven for us by cleansing heaven. Cleansing heaven by virtue of his sacrifice on the cross. Just like in the Old Testament, the high priest, he would cleanse the tabernacle, he would cleanse the tent, the tabernacle with blood that was taken from the animals on the Day of Atonement, according to Leviticus 16.16. So here we see in verse 23, you see this high priest cleansing the tabernacle. And that is what Jesus does by virtue of his death. Not not literally taking blood into heaven. By virtue of his death and because of his death, he cleanses heaven by his death. Now what on earth does that mean? Well, if you're a Seventh-day Adventist, they believe that there's a literal material tabernacle in heaven, a tent. But actually they miss that the the tabernacle in the Old Testament and all the furniture of the tabernacle, all of these things were just pictures. They were just a shadow of Jesus himself. Verse 23, you read of copies of the heavenly things or shadows. Verse 24 speaks of copies of the true things. So so these the, the Old Testament tabernacle, the Old Testament tent, the altar, the curtain in the temple or in the tabernacle and the altar of incense and the table with showbread and the high priest and everything else, the sacrifices and the candlestick or the lampstand and the Ark of the Covenant. These are all pictures of Jesus. You can reread the sermon I did on Hebrews chapter 8 and I explain it. But what we see here is Jesus not entering a literal or material tent that is just merely a tent made on earth, but going into heaven itself. Going into heaven itself. Verse 23, speaking of heavenly things. Verse 24, the same thing. And even in in verse 11 and 12. And even, even if you read the book of Revelation, in Revelation 21 verse 22, we read of... No temple in heaven, because Jesus is the temple. So what the Adventists say, the Seventh-day Adventists, they said, so Jesus went into this literal temple, or this literal tent in heaven, this little tabernacle, material tabernacle, and then they predicted that Jesus would come out of this tabernacle and return to the earth, the second coming in 1843. 
And obviously that didn't happen. And then they recalculated and they said, oh, we, we made a, cal there's a calculation error. Uh, actually, it would have been, it should have been 1844. But then in 1844, again, Jesus didn't return from heaven. The second coming didn't happen. And then they said, oh, you know what happened is this was a major error we made. Jesus, the, according to our calculations and our study, Jesus wasn't supposed to come out of the heavenly tabernacle and return to earth the second coming. What happened is that Jesus would have gone from the first section of the tabernacle in heaven into the second section, into the most holy place. So why did he go into the most holy place in, into heaven? Well, they say that was to purify heaven. To really, there's a, there's a kind of judgment he has to do, a searching that he has to do. And he has to show all the angels and the heavenly beings who are the true believers. Now, obviously, the true believers are those who believe in Jesus and those who keep God's law. And then very strongly meaning for them, you have to keep the seventh day Sabbath. And if you don't, then he wipes your name out of the book of life. Well, I think you understand if you know the Bible that is something they made up. That is wild speculation. All of those things they said, and that they, wild speculation that they cannot defend from Scripture. They'll go to Leviticus 16 and put their own interpretations, but all those things they, they said, nowhere can they show that this is exactly what Jesus is doing, and so on. All right, so now, what does verse 24 mean then? And what does verse 23 mean? Well, we can understand, we can understand that the Old Testament high priest, he had to purify the tabernacle or the tent because he and the rest of the priests that worked in the tabernacle, they were sinners. And so you can understand verse 21 to 23, they needed to purify the tabernacle. But why in the world does Jesus need to purify heaven? According to verse 23, he purified it. Why does he need to purify heaven if there's no sin in heaven? The answer is because there was sin in heaven. When Satan and many other angels rebelled against God, like in Genesis chapter 6, verse 2 and verse 4, where you read of these sons of God that rebel, and the sons of God, I believe, they're referring to heavenly beings, as in the book of Job, Job chapter 1 and 2, you read of the sons of God and then Satan being among them. So they rebel. Uh, Job 15, verse 15, the heaven itself is not pure in God's sight. And then we know how Satan rebelled. Isaiah 14, Ezekiel 28, although it speaks of kings and princes, earthly kings and princes, uh, we know from Daniel chapter 10 that heavenly beings and that fallen angels and that demons stand behind these kings and princes. So there it's very clear. It's a, a, a cherub. It's a, it's a kind of heavenly being that, that rebelled against God and said, I shall be as God. And then he is kicked out of heaven. 1 Timothy 3 verse 6 speak of, speaks of Satan becoming proud and he's kicked out of heaven. 2 Peter 2 verse 4, Jude chapter or verse 6, speaking of fallen angels, demons being kicked out of heaven. So Jesus needed to purify heaven. He needed to purify heaven. And he did so by virtue of his death, by virtue of his blood. Verse 23 speaks of the heavenly things themselves are Purified by better sacrifices, obviously the sacrifice of Christ. In Colossians chapter 1, in verse 20, 
we read, through Jesus, God reconciled to himself all things, whether on earth or in heaven, making peace. So there's earth or heaven, making peace by the blood of his cross. So now Satan can no longer come into heaven to accuse believers, to accuse Christians, like he did in the Old Testament with Job. He accused Job in Job 1 and 2. He accused Joshua the high priest in Zechariah 3. In the New Testament, he can no longer do so. He can no longer bring a charge against God's elect because Christ has justified us. God has justified us through the blood of Christ. The accuser of the brothers has been thrown out of heaven, Revelation 12. So, heaven is purified, according to verse 23. Now, the fact that Jesus purified heaven with his blood, it also means that no one will ever again rebel in heaven and will be kicked out of heaven as Satan was kicked out, as the demons were kicked out. So, your place as a Christian, your place in heaven is secure. And actually, to tell you the truth, believers are already sitting in the heavenly places in Christ, Ephesians 2 verse 6. Your life is hidden with Christ or in Christ with God. So that also means you cannot lose your salvation on earth. So for the Seventh-day Adventist church to say that Jesus will wipe your name out of the book of, the, uh, out of, the book of life, that's just, that's just nonsense. Our names have been written in the book of life before the foundation of the world. Revelation 13, 8, 17, 8, 20 verse 15, 21 verse 27 speaks of the names of Christians being written in the book of life. And Paul even says it's impossible for your name to be removed from the book of life. Romans 9 verse 3 where Paul says, I wish it could have been possible that my name is removed so that the Jews can be saved, implying it's not possible. Jesus promises he will never remove your name from the book of life, Revelation 3 verse 5. And then many say, oh, so he promises he won't do it, which means he can do it. Don't turn a, a promise into a threat. Jesus didn't threaten his children. He promised he will ne never remove their names. And then someone says, yes, but what about Exodus 32, 32? Or Psalm 69 verse 28, where God says, where God speaks of, uh, Moses says, for instance, Lord, remove my name out of the book of life rather than, than destroy your people. And the psalmist prays, Lord, remove their names out of the book of the living. Well, the book of the living in both those verses is not the same as the book of life. The book of the living is a record that God has who is still alive and is alive on earth. It's a record of all those who are alive on earth. So what these people are saying is, Lord, remove these people, kill them. Kill them and remove their name from the record of the living and move them to the record of the dead. So it's nothing to do with the book of life as we know it in the New Testament. Yes, but what about Revelation 22 verse 19? In the King James Version or the, or the Old Afrikaans translation, it says that God will re remove people's names from the book of life. Well, the, the best Greek manuscripts do not say that God will remove their names from the book of life. What it says is they will have no part in the tree of life. Like, like in Revelation 22.14, where it says, it speaks of believers, they've been washed by the blood of the Lamb, and they have right to the tree of life. They have right to enter the holy city, the new Jerusalem. Revelation 2 verse 7, those who conquer, they will have right to the tree of life. 
in Genesis 3, they did not have right to the tree of life. God put a flaming sword and a cherub he put there to prevent Adam and Eve from coming in to the garden again and to eat of the tree of life. So what Revelation is saying is that these people, because they are playing with God's word and removing stuff and adding stuff, it's saying that they will have no part of the tree of life, meaning they will not be able to enter heaven. It's not saying God will remove their names from the book of life. Oh, they were saved and now they lose their salvation. So you can check that on, on my blog, uh, Baptista Kerk, Kempton Park. You can check this sermon, the title in Afrikaans. It'll be of the, of the top sermons when you, when you open the blog. Wat doen Jesus vir sy kinders? And then you can just check that sermon. And the footnote gives you a thorough explanation of why that is the correct translation. All right, so what I'm trying to say is you can breathe. You can breathe and you can take heart. Jesus will not let you slip through his fingers like a little girl that loses her mom's very expensive diamond ring. No one will pluck you from his hand. He will never leave you nor forsake you. And... No one can separate you from his love and you've been sealed with the Holy Spirit as a guarantee that you'll have the inheritance of heaven and he who began the good work and you will complete it till the day of Christ Jesus. All right, that's answer number one. Answer number two, to answer the question, what is Jesus doing for his children? That's in verse 24. And the answer is he's praying for them. I believe that you feel very encouraged when you hear that people are praying for you, when someone says, I'm praying for you and they mean it. And you feel even more encouraged when you're in a prayer meeting and you actually hear someone praying your name. So like in the Old Testament, you had these high priests and they went into to a man-made tabernacle, a man-made tent to pray for the people. In the same way, Jesus is praying for you. If you're a Christian, he's praying for you in the true tabernacle called heaven. He's praying for his children, verse 24. Christ has entered not into holy places made with hands, which are copies of the true things, but into heaven itself, now to appear in the presence of God on our behalf. Chapter 7, verse 25, He's praying for us. Romans 8, 34, He's praying for us. Do you wish that you could actually hear Jesus pray your name? Well, let me give you good news. You can. You can. John chapter 17, verse 20. Open your Bible and read, Father, I do not pray for these only, meaning the 11 disciples, but for all those who will believe through their word. Jesus prayed for you, and he's still praying for you. What is he praying for? I think if you, if you read John 17, you get a pretty good idea of what he's still praying for his children. He thanks the Father for you. He thanks the Father. Just go and read John 17. I've got all the references here. He thanks the Father for you, that you believe that you belong to Him. He prays that you would keep on believing in Him, that you would believe to the very end and that He would keep you to the end. He prays, He's praying that, that your heart may be filled with His joy. He's praying that the Father protect you from this world and from Satan and from demons. He's praying that you would grow under the word. 
that you would grow spiritually and that you would be sanctified, that you would become more holy through the word. He's praying that you would shine his light in the world. He's praying that you would be totally and completely changed through the reality and the message of the cross, the gospel. He's praying that you will not be at odds with other believers, that there will be no division between believers, but that you would be one with himself and one with the Father, and that this unity between you and the Father and the Son and other believers would show the world that Jesus is the one, Jesus is the Son of God. Because it's only Jesus who can, who can create true unity, right? True unity between rich and poor, white and black, male and female, old and young. He's praying that you would see and enjoy His glory in heaven. And He's praying that He and the Father, that He would dwell in you and that the Father's love would be in you. How do you know? How do you know that the Father will answer these prayers for you? These prayers that Jesus are praying for you? Well, the wounds, the marks, are still in Jesus' hands and feet. He still bears the marks of the cross. When he was raised from the dead, he said to Thomas, Put your finger in the marks. He's like a lamb who was slain. And so the Father still sees that and remembers the death of His Son for our sins. And the Father then, the Father then accepts the sacrifice of Jesus on our behalf. And He accepts His prayers then on our behalf. In the verse 24, He goes to appear in the presence of God on our behalf. Now, now, maybe that's not an issue at all. You're not worried about that at all. And you actually, you're actually very discontent and you're very disappointed because Jesus is praying for the wrong things. You want more money. You want more success. You want prosperity. You want health. You don't want these things. You're really like a child. You're like a child who wants to tell his mother what is best. You must have lots and lots of sweets and no food. Just eat sweets. You, you always want to play and not work. You want the suckers that the doctor can give you, the candy, the sweets. You want that rather than the medicine he gives you. Well, what I'm trying to tell you is you've got a really, really bad grip on what is best for you. And you should learn to pray with the preachers of old. Lord, when you invite me, when you invite me and tell me I can decide for myself in any matter, I would rather choose to defer to you, to give it all back to you because you are infinitely wise and you can never do wrong as I am in danger of doing. Number three, what is Jesus doing for his children? Well, he removes their sins, verse 25 and 26. So John Bunyan wrote a book called The Pilgrim's Progress and in the book he writes of a man called Christian and Christian has got a massive burden on his shoulders that he has to bear and this is the burden of his conviction of sin and nothing can remove it. Nothing. He's tried everything, but nothing will remove his sin and conviction of sin. And then it just get, gets worse when someone tells him, climb Mount, Mount Sinai. 
and go to the law and try and keep the law and remove the burden. And it doesn't. It gets heavy and worse. And it only gets removed when Christian comes to the cross and the burden falls off and rolls into an empty tomb. Only Jesus can remove your sin. Well, the Old Testament high priest and all these sacrifices, they were just a picture of Christ removing our sin. But they could never remove the sin. Chapter 10, verse 1, it's just a shadow of the law. These continual sacrifices couldn't make perfect. Chapter 10, verse 4, the blood of bulls and goats, it's impossible for them to take away sin. How do we know? How do we know that the high priest and the Old Testament sacrifices couldn't remove sins? Because year in and year out, every single year on the Day of Atonement, the high priest went and tried or brought these sacrifices and it couldn't remove sin. Verse 25, nor was it to offer himself repeatedly as the high priest enters the holy places every year with blood not his own. So the mere fact that he continually had to bring these sacrifices show you it didn't remove sin. Chapter 10, verse 11. He even stands daily at service offering repeatedly the same sacrifices which can never take away sin. Well, Jesus, his sacrifice is not like that. If it was like that and it couldn't remove sin, well, then Jesus had to would have to be sacrificed from the foundation of the world, from Genesis 3, the moment Adam and Eve sinned. He would have to be sacrificed for our sins often and daily even. Verse 26, he would have had to suffer repeatedly since the foundation of the world. But we're so glad it's not that way. So what Jesus did once for all at the end of the ages, meaning the end of the old covenant, Jesus came and he appeared to sacrifice himself. And to actually remove sin. And he did remove it. He did remove it. It says so in verse 26 at the end. To put away sin by the sacrifice of himself. He removed our sin as far as the east is from the west. He cast it into the deepest ocean. He removed it like a mist disappears before the sun. He took it away like in the Old Testament when, when the, the high priest would put his hands on the head. He would take one goat and then sacrifice the goat on the Day of Atonement, Leviticus 16. And then a second goat, he would lay his hands on the head of this goat, uh, almost a picture as if he's, he's leaning his full weight on this goat to say, I'm trusting, I'm trusting in someone else, trusting in something else to remove my sin. Really pointing to Jesus, of course. And then also putting his hands on the head of this goat as a symbol that the sins of the people, the sins of Israel, and his own sin as high priest is being transferred to this goat. And then he sends away the goat into the wilderness, into the desert. And the picture is that the goat takes away the sins of Israel. And so that was just a picture of leaning our full weight on someone else, of transferring our sin to someone else. And it's transferred to Jesus. And obviously, not just symbolically, but really, really. Jesus, who removes our sins, verse, end of verse 26. So he's removed it. It's removed. It's taken out of the record books. It's removed, taken out of the record books for all those who believe. The record of death that stood against us is nailed to the cross. We've been justified. We've been declared not guilty. We've been declared innocent. We've been declared righteous. 
But how? How does Jesus remove all our sins, the sins of millions, through a single sacrifice? I mean, the Old Testament priest was unsuccessful. Hundreds and thousands of sacrifices. And he could never remove sin. How does Jesus do it through by a single sacrifice? Remember, the Old Testament high priest was a sinner. He couldn't die for others. But Jesus is sinless. He could die for others. He didn't need to die for his own sin. And then take animal sacrifices. Well, these animal sacrifices, an animal, the life of an animal is not of the same value as a human life. So an animal could never really, could never really be the substitute for a human and for the sins of human beings. But Jesus, Jesus is truly man. And that's why he could die for other people. His life has the same value as another human life. But then a human life, one human life, has the value of another human life, but it doesn't have the value of millions of other humans. But Jesus is God. Jesus is God. He's the eternal one. And therefore, in a very short moment, <coughs> on the cross, he could bear an eternal punishment for millions of sinners. So it's, it's not necessary. It's not necessary for you to bring sacrifices to try and earn God's favor. It's not necessary for you to do religious works to earn God's favor. The sacrifice Jesus brought is enough. It's sufficient. He's already won the, the Father's favor and earned the Father's favor for us. So if you accept Christ, if you receive Christ, if you accept the sacrifice of Jesus on the cross, then the Father accepts you and forgives your sin. But if you reject Christ, and if you reject the only way to be saved, the only way to be forgiven, there's no hope for you. How else will you be saved? Are you going to bring the rubbish sacrifices of your own life, of your own heart? People say, I gave my heart to Jesus. Your heart is rotten. Don't give your heart to Jesus. Jesus must give you a new heart. Are you going to bring the good works, your good works to Jesus? Good works that sprout from a heart filled with pride and selfishness and lust, bitterness, impurity? Do you really think he will be pleased with such rubbish? You think that's going to be acceptable to a God who hates sin? Would you give that to an earthly king? Well, why then would you give it to the heavenly king and think he will accept it? Why will you give it to the perfect king of heaven and think he will be satisfied with that? Well, if you think that way, then you, then you don't think much of the God of heaven, the king of heaven. Why not just swallow your pride? Why not just acknowledge, I am a hell-bound sinner. I am wicked. My heart is evil. I deserve hell. Why not just confess, I cannot save myself. And just accept the sacrifice of Jesus is enough. And then the Father, then the Father 
will see you as someone and will regard you as sinless as Jesus himself and as righteous as Jesus himself. 2 Corinthians 5 verse 21. And then he doesn't frown upon you anymore. He has already frowned upon Jesus when Jesus took your sin upon himself. When Jesus cried out, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? So because of the sacrifice of Jesus, the Father now smiles upon you. Final answer number four. What is Jesus doing for his children? Well, he saves them from death. That's in verse 27 and 28. Death is one of the greatest fears in life. Many people are very afraid of death. Just think of this. Just imagine climbing up a tree and sitting in a tree while hungry lions surround the tree trying to get up the tree to get at you. The fear in your heart. Imagine that. Imagine robbers coming to your house at night and they tie you up and you don't have a gun. And they've got a gun to your head. The fear. Imagine the fear. You are trapped in a house that's busy burning. It's on fire. You're going to die. Imagine the fear. Imagine the fear of driving along the highway and suddenly a motorist, another person on the highway, falls asleep and he swings and turns into your lane. The fear, the, the absolute panic and terror when that happens. People are afraid of death. But now Jesus comes and he saves his people from death. Obviously God, God has determined and God has decreed and God has appointed man to die once. Verse 27. God said to Adam, the day you eat of that tree, you die. So he has appointed every single man to die and woman. Now there are exceptions to the rule. There's Lazarus. He, he doesn't die once. He dies twice. He's raised from the dead and later on he dies again. And some other people in the Bible, they were raised from the dead and they die twice. And then there are other exceptions of people who don't die at all. Like Enoch didn't die, Elijah didn't die. The people who will still be alive when Jesus returns, they won't die. But this is the rule. The rule is you die once. Even Jesus himself died once. Verse 28, so Christ having been offered once to bear the sins of many. And he did it, obviously, for our sins. So there's no such thing as reincarnation. There's no such thing as you come back as something else in a second life. You die once, verse 27. And then when you die, you go to heaven or you go to hell. Your body goes to the grave, but your soul goes to heaven or to hell. And I've got many cross-references here to prove that. I can just give you one, Luke chapter 16. It speaks of one man going to hell and one man going to heaven. And you may say, oh, that's a parable. Will Jesus tell lies in parables and trick us? To say things that aren't really so. And I've got some other verses that prove people go straight to heaven or straight to hell when they die. Acts chapter 1 verse 25. Jude verse 7. Second Peter 2 verse 9. Speaking of people going to hell when they die. Luke 23 verse 43. Second Corinthians 5 verse 8. Hebrews 12 23. People going straight to heaven when they die. And then the next thing after that will be the final judgment when Jesus returns. So the next thing after death, you die, you go to heaven or to hell, and the next great event is after that comes judgment. Verse 27. So now the question. And I'm saying it happens when Jesus returns because verse 28 says so. So 
Now the question, how certain are you that you will pass the final judgment? What hope do you have? What hope do you have of passing the final judgment if you are trusting in your good works, if you are trusting in your religion, if you are trusting in your sincerity? How do you know it was enough? Do you just hope, oh, oh, I just hope my good deeds outweigh my bad deeds, outweigh my, my sin. You know it doesn't work that way. You know it doesn't work that way. You know that you can't escape the judgment for murder just because you did more good than bad. And that's in a human court. How much more in the divine court, in the court of God, God who is a perfect judge. Your only hope is the cross of Christ. Because on the cross, there, there, Jesus bore the sin of millions. Jesus paid the fine for millions. Verse 28. He bore the sins of many. And you receive the advantages. You receive all the good things that come out of that by faith. And then these privileges, they go beyond their death, beyond heaven, beyond the second coming, beyond the final judgment, right to the new earth. Verse 28. It will appear a second time, not to deal with sin, but to save those who are eagerly waiting for it. So if you have the cross, if you have the cross of Christ, then the second coming and the day of judgment, it's not something to fear. It's not something to be afraid of. It's something to look forward to. Because then you will see, Je you'll see Jesus coming out of heaven. Jesus and the new Jerusalem coming down from heaven. Revelation 21 verse 2 speaks of the new Jerusalem coming down, of heaven coming down, of Christ coming down. In the words of a Welsh preacher, Stuart Olliot, saying, Jesus will come to earth again without ever leaving heaven, because heaven itself will come down. But this time, this time, this time, Jesus is not coming as a servant to die. Jesus is coming as a king, the king of kings and lord of lords, to redeem and to save our bodies from the grave. Verse 28. To save those who are eagerly waiting for him. Are you looking forward to that? Is the second coming in your thoughts? Is the second coming in your prayers? Or are you so complacent? You've become so used to this world. You are just really, really enjoying this world. Are you doing that? Or are you sighing, longing, yearning? To be saved from this sinful world. Verse 28. All those who are eagerly waiting for him. Do you desire to be with Jesus? Are you living for Jesus? Is Jesus to you what water is to a fish? Is Jesus to you what the wind is to an eagle? Is Jesus to you what space is to a planet, what the sun is to the day, and what oxygen is to the lungs? How can you, how can Jesus not be these things to you? If he has given his life to you, his life for you. And in a very short while, 
He will return and give his kingdom to you. Let's pray. Oh, Lord Jesus, come quickly. Come quickly, Lord Jesus. Amen.